In the run-up to the first Climate Adaptation Summit in 2021, organized by the Global Center on Adaptation, ECDPM wants to learn more about this strategy to tackle climate change. Simply put, climate adaptation means adjusting life to a changing climate. Throughout the series, which features episodes in both English and French, we will talk about how adaptation can build better food systems or how it can be a means to peace building. We want to present practical ideas that are relevant for Europe and Africa. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Hello everyone, I'm Hannah Knappe and I'm coordinating the work on climate at the European Centre for Development Policy Management. Welcome to the first episode of our Climate Adaptation Talks, during which we want to learn more about adaptation from different perspectives. Today I'm talking to Professor Salim Hook, who is the Director of the International Centre for Climate Change and Development in Bangladesh. He is one of the leading global experts on climate change and sustainable development, and he has worked on two IPCC reports as the lead author of the adaptation chapters. Hello, Professor Hook, and thank you for joining us today. You are one of the leading authorities globally on adaptation. Could you tell us a bit more about the adaptation work you have done so far? Sure. I'm the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development based at the Independent University Bangladesh. We run a master's program in climate change and development, and we do a lot of uh, short teaching courses on different aspects of uh, adaptation to climate change. And one of our big uh, programs is peer-to-peer capacity building learning, sharing the experience of the Bangladesh with people from other countries. Bangladesh is known to be one of the most vulnerable countries to climate change, as it is very prone to flooding and cyclones. At the same time, your country is also internationally recognized for its progress on climate action. What have been the key ingredients for the success of the Bangladeshi government to build resilience? The biggest factor in the case of Bangladesh is a whole-of-society approach uh, to building uh, capacity of all the citizens of the country uh, to recognize the problem and then be able to take actions. And the biggest uh, experience we have, I would cite, is in dealing with cyclones, which are a normal natural occurrence in this part of the world. Every year we get a season with cyclones, but in the meantime, we have developed a very robust cyclone monitoring and early warning system and built thousands of cyclone shelters in the coastal area. So that now, two to three million people living in the coastal area of Bangladesh, they can track the cyclone on their own mobile phones and they know where to go, what to do. And we can successfully evacuate more than two and a half million people. Wow, that's really impressive. So we talked about cyclones. Now, what is the impact of climate change on floods in Bangladesh? The Bangladesh is a country is on the delta of uh, uh, two of the biggest rivers in the world, the Ganges and the Brahmaputra. And we have records of floods going back hundreds of years, where a severe flood, which is called a one in 20 year flood, has been occurring uh, almost on clockwork every 20 years or so for the last hundreds of years. In the last 20 years, we've had four of them. In mm-hmm. fact, we have a flood going on right now in the country. So. What used to be a one in 20 year flood is likely to become 
a one in five or even a one in four year flood going forward. And that is attributable to human-induced climate change. With increased super cyclones and flooding, in practice, how has the government taken action? We have set up the Climate Change Trust Fund, where the finance minister has been putting about $100 million every year into implementing adaptation activities. Uh, currently, the Bangladesh Prime Minister also chairs the group of climate vulnerable forum countries, which are nearly 50 of the poorest countries in the world, many of them in Africa. And one of the approaches is to share the knowledge of Bangladesh in a South-South learning manner uh, with other countries, both within the region in Asia, but also reaching out uh, to Africa. So you mentioned the Climate Trust Fund, and I heard you speak at an IIED event recently on climate action and the road to COP26. And there you said that in Bangladesh, 7.5% of the national budget is dedicated to climate action. Now, concretely, what does that mean on the ground? Sure. So I, I mentioned the Climate Trust Fund. That was the first thing that was set up about 10 years ago uh, to implement the activities identified in the climate change strategy and action plan. And over the years, the trust fund, as I said, each year had about $100 million equivalent in the national budget allocated to it. It has supported hundreds of activities across the government, as well as in the non-governmental civil society. And so we have collectively all gone up a learning curve on what to de- do, what we need to do to deal with the impacts of climate change on adaptation and building resilience. And now in the last couple of years, the government is now mainstreaming that allocation into the national budget. And in the current national budget, the allocation is 7.5% of the national budget across 25 ministries in which each ministry, Ministry of Agriculture, Ministry of Water, Ministry of Education, et cetera, et cetera, all have to have a built-in climate change adaptation program within their business as usual, not just additional extra projects, which they started with, but now it has to be mainstreamed into national development. And so Bangladesh is well on the way to mainstreaming uh, climate change adaptation into its national development across the board, both within government as well as with outside government agencies as well. This is really interesting, particularly for African countries that have to deal with similar problems. Are these lessons from Bangladesh being exported to African countries? Is there any interaction on sharing lessons? So I will mention three. I'll start with the work that my center, the International Center for Climate Change and Development does. We host uh, Africans here to come either to do a master's degree in our master's program. We have a number of people from Africa. We also hold a lot of short courses where we have had people coming from Africa on a regular basis over the last seven, eight years. We have probably had three or 400 Africans coming and participating in these courses. So our alumni network is about 500 all over the world of which about 300 are from Africa. Then at a more systematic level in the last couple of years, we have set up a network of universities called the Least Developed Countries Universities Consortium on Climate Change, LUCCC or LUC for short, which includes the least developed countries of which the the majority are from Africa. So two thirds of the 50 countries that are LDCs are in Africa and we have a number of universities in that network and we are doing university to university, peer to peer knowledge exchange at the faculty level, research as well as at the student level for young people as well. 
And then the third and final element, I will uh, reiterate what the Prime Minister is doing under the Climate Vulnerable Forum. There is a program for South-South knowledge sharing and collaboration that is going to be rolled out. That has not started yet, but it's going to be rolled out very soon and will start probably from next year onwards on an official government-to-government basis. So is this work that you just mentioned linked to the Global Center on Adaptation? So the Global Center on Adaptation is headquartered in the Netherlands. It is setting up a set of regional centers. It set one up last year in China. It just set one up and launched one in Dhaka for South Asia. And it just a few days ago launched one for Africa and there will be others around the world. And this is linking up uh, global actors, governments and non-governmental actors working on adaptation, which is a, a product of the Global Commission on Adaptation, which was started a few years ago by Mr. Ban Ki-moon and uh, Mr. Bill Gates and Ms. Kristalina Georgieva of the IMF. And these activities are now going to go forward. The, the center in Dhaka is going to be a lead, globally lead center on what is called locally led adaptation, which is how to involve the most vulnerable communities in, in enhancing their capacity and capabilities to deal with the impacts of climate change because they are the ones who are suffering the most and they are the ones who need the most help. And there are many of them in Bangladesh, but there are also many of them in Africa. So we talked about action at the local level and at the national level. Now, is there any type of country-to-country cooperation on climate action in your region? There is a regional cooperation body called SARC. uh, That is a political association. It's like ASEAN and EU. Uh, But it is not a particularly uh, effective and functional uh, at the political level because we have a lot of political disputes Uh, between some of the countries in the South Asia region, primarily between Pakistan and India. So it makes cooperation difficult. On the other hand, the Global Center on Adaptation that I mentioned will be headquartered in Dhaka is actually a South Asia regional center. And we are hopeful that when it comes to tackling climate change, there will be an opportunity and a willingness for all the countries in the region to cooperate with each other. And we had a partnership forum at the launch and we got some very good inputs from the ministers from the different countries in the region, as well as experts in adaptation from uh, within the region. Recently in Sudan, we had some terrible floods. Practically, what could Sudan learn from what you're doing in Bangladesh? So uh, flooding is a much more complex phenomenon than cyclones. I mentioned cyclones, which come very rapidly. You need to take shelter for a, a few hours or a day and then the cyclone goes away and you can come out. Floods are more complex. They happen around the rivers. In cities, you have downpours. In different places, you have flash floods. So it's a much more complex phenomena and not that easy to predict, although we are getting better and better at predicting them so that people can get warnings and move out of the way. So even with floods in Bangladesh nowadays, we don't, people don't die, but we do, they still do a lot of damage. People are able to take shelter Uh, from the flood, but their houses and their crops get damaged. And so what we are trying to do is to improve our uh, warning systems, our embankments to protect some places, you can't protect everywhere, um, and to also invest in uh, flood tolerant varieties of crops, particularly rice. Rice, which we grow a lot of, is a flood tolerant variety uh, crop in itself, and our scientists are developing flood tolerant varieties that can withstand high levels of flooding. 
And so these are some of the technologies and adaptation methodologies that we can share with other countries. And we hope to be able to share with countries like Sudan. In fact, one of our university partners is the University of Khartoum uh, in Khartoum. And, and we are working with them uh, to see how we can share our knowledge with them as well. When it comes to tackling climate change, Europe and Africa do not necessarily see eye to eye. Europe has tended to focus strongly on mitigation, while Africa's priority has always been adaptation. What would be your advice to the European Union on adaptation, particularly in Africa? Well, my first uh, piece of advice, if you like, uh, for European Union in particular, is to think about the consequences of not adapting to the impacts of climate change, which is going to be migration and displacement in orders of magnitude more than we are seeing right now. And so if the European Union wants to prevent that level of migration from Africa into Europe, then in their own interest, they need to do things to prevent it from happening. And preventing it is by helping Africans adapt to the impacts of climate change so that they don't suffer what is called loss and damage from impacts of climate change. Loss and damage is a new and emerging area which speaks to the fact that we have failed to mitigate enough and we are failing to adapt enough and therefore we are seeing loss and damage and a consequence of loss and damage is forced displacement of populations which are taking place all over the world. In fact, right now, as we speak, 500,000 climate refugees are moving around in Oregon in the United States because of the wildfires. They have had to move out of their homes because of these super wildfires, which are absolutely occurring because of human-induced climate change. And so the human-induced climate change impacts are now becoming so severe that displacement is going to become a growing problem. And by growing, I mean by orders of magnitude bigger than anything that we've seen today. And so in their own interest, they should be looking at how to help uh, the countries in Africa adapt to the impacts of climate change. And obviously from the African perspective, building adaptation capacity and resilience is the highest priority. In fact, as I mentioned, the Global Center on Adaptation uh, Center, which has uh, just been launched in Abidjan in, in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, has a big program together with the African Union uh, adaptation to promote adaptation at scale and do much more of it in Africa than has been done so far. That has to be the highest priority for Africa. And the European Union should not support it out of the goodness of their heart. They should support it to protect themselves from the potential migrants that might occur if they don't help Africa adapt to the impacts of climate change. And I guess that when it comes to adaptation, awareness raising has to be a top priority too, right? Absolutely. So to me, the biggest uh, priority in the short term is raising awareness to a large extent that is happening already, uh, as, which is a good thing. And then we need to move from raising awareness to raising capacity to deal with the problem. So awareness is, a, is knowing about a problem. Capacity to deal with the problem is where you need education and you need to invest in education institutions. And in particular, I would focus on universities. Every country, even the poorest country in Africa has more than one university. Very often these universities have some capacity but we can build a lot more capacity there if we want. Unfortunately, the way that international capacity building funding is given is actually the wrong kind of funding where experts, say from Europe, are fly flown into 
African countries, they run workshops and they fly back. We call it fly in, fly out consultancy expertise that doesn't leave much behind. You have to build expertise at the national level and the particular institutions that are most uh, relevant are universities. And that's really where I feel for the longer term, they don't give you short-term returns, but they will give you long-term returns in terms of building resilience and capacity to deal with the impacts of climate change. Short-term consultants are not going to solve the problem. So I read about your contribution to the Paris framework on climate change capacity building. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So when we were agreeing or negotiating the Paris Agreement at the COP21 back in 2015 in Paris, uh, the developing countries, particularly the least developed countries, brought up this issue of capacity building where all the investment that had been going in was for international consultants to fly in, do workshops and fly out, what we call fly in, fly out, consultancy-driven capacity building, which leaves a little bit behind, but nowhere near enough. And what we have argued for, and in the Paris Agreement, we succeeded in getting Article 11, a brand new article on capacity building, which we never had before, which said that we need to build capacity building capacities at the national level. We have to invest in building that capacity building capacity at the national level. And that is now adopted by Article 11. We have the Paris Committee on Capacity Building doing a lot of networking and activities on this. And as I said, the university network that I run for the least developed countries is a university network where we are helping to build each other. It's a South-South network of building capacity on, particularly on adaptation to climate change. And within that, particularly on community-based adaptation or locally-led adaptation, working with the most vulnerable communities, which are the ones that need the most help and are the most vulnerable in, in all the poorest countries in Africa and in Asia. Thank you very much, Professor Hook. This was a fascinating conversation for me, offering a lot of practical advice to our African and European listeners. Once again, thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you for listening to our Climate Adaptation Talks. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter at ECDPM to stay up to date on all our latest papers, blogs and news on EU-Africa cooperation. See you next time.